honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hey guys, this is Sarah Green here. I just recorded my episode for the Women in Sneakers season for the Strange on Purpose podcast. Check it out. I'm quarantined in LA, so if I want to shop or anything like that, I, I can. But yeah. Yeah. Let's do this it. is totally random. And we can get into who you are in a second, but I just <laughs> found out you were a track athlete. So was I, or what was it long jump? I jump? Yeah, so, so it was long jump. Um, I did four by four, 200, oh. 800. Oh. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Tough hurdles as well. Oh, yeah. long or short? So I did hurdles for 400. Oh, yeah. You were crazy. I I was crazy back then. um, But (laughs) as I got as I got older, I would tell you that I am completely out of shape. (laughs) But but what I will say when it comes to track athletes, you know, especially when you start at a young age, I started at seven years old. So I would say that it, it pretty much molded my body to what it is now. Um, so if I do need to work out, I would say that I have, I guess I afforded myself to work out for maybe a month and then I'll be back in shape. But I think again, that, I don't know, I'll work out and then I'll feel good for a couple of days. But if I completely miss days, like if I miss a week or two weeks, then I'm right back to square one. So I think consistency is key, but I will think my track career and being a track athlete um that has kept my I guess kept my body the way it is now um but that doesn't mean I've I will you know eat junk food and things like that I I don't eat fast food like McDonald's Burger King I I don't eat that food I haven't eaten it in 15 plus years so I think that helps it as well but you know I have a five guys here and there but yeah (laughs) I uh, (laughs) um You know, I love Five Guys. Uh, I think they, you know, a different level of fast food. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, it it was a tough, it was a tough road because all my siblings ran track. So when I was born and and when I was young, I, I had to run track because everyone, all my other siblings, my two older sisters ran track, ran pen relays. My brother ran track, pen relays. So, and my younger sister runs track as well. So we're a track family, I guess you can say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds stressful. I get Very. it now. 400 hurdles, yeah. 800, 400, long jump, just throwing pole vaulting. Like, damn. <laughs> yeah, well, I never did the pole vault. I, I <laughs> totally sucked at that. I didn't even try. But, um, yeah. <laughs> See, Q doesn't want to tell you, but I was a track athlete too, but I was not good whatsoever. I Listen, couldn't run. I couldn't run. I ended up actually throwing javelin. Um, and then Q threw the javelin once and he threw it further than me. So I was just but like, Izzy, you know what? Izzy I'm going to be a, a coach. Yeah. Izzy, like, <laughs> randomly, <laughs> randomly, we were at a meet. Like, this 
this will tell you like the level of like how weird we are. We're at a meet, like I'm running, you know, like I'm competing. Izzy's name is called up. He breaks a record, but it's not Izzy. It's not Izzy running. It was somebody else running for oh. Izzy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. That yeah. was Izzy. That was me. That is crazy. That, that is crazy. I but, broke a record you know, though. Well, <laughs> for like two seconds. Listen. It's all right. It's all right. It's definitely a mindset thing for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, it, it does put your body um, through a lot. Um, so yeah, it, it, if it's for you, it's for you. If it's not, it's not. I mean, there's so many different sports. Um, so it's like, Hey, if track isn't, wasn't for you, maybe another, you know, another sport was, but yeah. it's definitely a mindset thing. You know, if you know that you, you're not really passionate about it or have a love for it, then you're kind of like, all right, this this is done. <laughs> it tracks like it. a different different level, especially when you get into like the the eight hundreds, the the four hundreds, four hundred hurdles. Like mentally, just an entirely different level. Can you talk a little bit about like just how that has impacted you, like kind of in the way that it's impacted your body, but mentally? Yeah, what I would say that I am thankful that I came in as a track athlete at seven years old, instead of starting my track career further, I guess like high school, starting it in high school, um, it helped me to sustain being um, mentally challenged like all the time. Because mentally, you know, or physically, I would say, you know that you're in pain, right? You know, You know that you're running out of breath. You know that you know, you're kind of, um, you know, your, your gas, I guess your gas tank is becoming empty, but in your mentally, you have to challenge that. And you have to say, no, I'm going to continue to push. I'm going to continue to run. Um, unfortunately there were a few times that I ran, uh, injured because mentally I was so focused on winning and wanting to be first and, and, and honestly get the race done you know, that I just completely disregarded physically what my body um, was telling me. And that is a good thing and a bad thing. I would say you become mentally strong very early on. Um, but physically, you know, sometimes you just push your body to the limit. And I would say that has affected me um, physically because when I do work out now, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to, because it just brings, it's like a flashback of how I felt when I really trained as a track athlete. But what I would say is, um, it taught me about community. It taught me about being a team player. Um, it, it taught me about being collaborative, you know, really relying on your team members and in, in knowing, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses are as well. And I learned that early on, long jump was my thing. Um, I didn't do 100 to 200. I wasn't a sprinter at that level, but I was able to train for things that I knew that I would be successful in. Um, again, that road is difficult and you have to appreciate those small wins, either if you are winning, you know, running a second faster or, you know, things like that. It's all about progression. Um, what I would say is that I use that in my life today as, um, you know, a full-time employee at a sports brand and an entrepreneur because 
I have to challenge certain things that get in the way for me to become successful. And that's what it's really about, honestly. You know, everyone wants to own a business. Everyone wants to be a leader. However, if you are not taking the steps to get there, then you don't appreciate it. And sometimes you don't get there because you're not taking those steps to become that entrepreneur, to become um, a leader in your community. So when things go, I guess when things go bad, I don't like to say that, but when things happen um, within that path and that journey, I always have to get into a certain mind state that I'm going to win. And this is just a small bump in the road. Um, Now that might sound very cliche and easy, easier said than done, but once you train your mind, once you consistently um, do a routine that really exercises um, key components to being successful, like, and that could mean something different from, for everyone. Um, that could mean waking up early in the morning. That could mean exercising, you know, first thing in the morning before you start emails, things like that. So I really rely on my, my mindset and challenging my thoughts. Um, that's, that's key, but yeah, it's, you can, I think any sport always pushes you to, I guess, to place yourself in an uncomfortable position, right? You know, you're, you're, you're learning this new thing, you're learning this new sport or like my family being a track family, I guess you could say it's like, even though my siblings were in track, I was learning something new until I got into the routine I'm running faster. And when I would long jump, you know, um, jumping further. So it's, you know, there is a physical aspect of it, but it's all mental. It's all mental. If you know that you're going to lose, then why, why run that race? You know, why even start if you and your soul know that you're not going to win anyway, and you can't go into anything in life that way. Yeah, really. I, uh, one of the, one of the best times that I, I think I came up in third, uh, one meet, I threw a javelin and you talk about mindset. I, I still remember this for whatever reason. I came in with so much confidence. Uh, to be honest, I am, uh, I'm a baseball athlete at heart. I came, I I thought I was going to walk onto the baseball team at our college um, mm-hmm. and then he was like, yo, you should be on the track team and come to Myrtle beach for a free trip out there. And I was like, okay, whatever, let's do it. And that's not uh, what I said. That's you how you said, remember it. That's, yes, that's, that's how I remember. That's how I remember. That's, that's how he remembered. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it was, it was very interesting to actually sit down, like actually see like how mindset really changes just how I performed. And mm-hmm. that summer, uh, I ended up playing uh, summer ball with the baseball program. And I played really well. And I think I attributed a lot to, obviously, my training and track. I came in in shape and everything like that. But then, two, I, I feel like I finally had my mindset right. And I, like, in high school, I used to go, always go up to the plate and think, like, all right, this pitcher, I played at a really, really competitive, competitive division they were like, I, I went up there like, oh, I'm probably, I'm going to fly out. I'm going to pop out. I'm going to do something. And 
it just got to a point where I finally had confidence and it's crazy what confidence can do to an athlete or an individual entrepreneur, as you hit on, uh, it's crazy how confidence can really just change your mindset completely. Yeah, it definitely does. It definitely does for sure. Um, but you know, at times we, we all get into our head, mm-hmm. you know, it, you, sometimes you don't come in with confidence. Sometimes you, you come in with fear. Um, but I always, you know, when I watch church and I'm Christian and it's always, I always think about, you know, faith over fear, like faith over fear. Like you have to have faith in yourself. You have to really, um, know that you are worthy of whatever, you know, you are working for. Um, and once you realize that you are opening up that, that energy to, to come in, you know? So yeah, it it's, it's good when you come in with that energy. It, it's good when you come in with that confidence because you're, you're a warrior. You're right. You're ready to fight. Mm-hmm. And whatever that fight may mean, that may, that might mean, you know, hitting a home run or her, that may mean just trying to run faster. But I think what's also important is setting goals for yourself and, and, and you say, you know, I achieved this. And then from there, this is what I'm going to achieve next, you know? And, um, yeah, I think when you do come in with a different energy, you're you're coming ready. You're coming full in. You're you're like, all right, let's do this. Let's make it happen. You know, um, and that's always a positive. That's always a positive. That and that's something that you should always keep with you with anything that you're doing. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely love that point. Just coming in there with confidence and killing it. Yeah, you have to. So. Sarah, we're a bit into the, the episode now, uh, even though Q said okay. this would be a little bit. Uh, do you want to <laughs> do you want to introduce who you are and what you do and why you do it? Yeah, so I am, well, I'll use my Sarah Green. Okay. <laughs> so um, my, my close friends call me Sasani, but Ooh, okay. um, my name is Sarah Green. I am from Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, currently residing in Portland, Oregon. I work for Adidas as a footwear developer, um, specifically in basketball, as well as an entrepreneur, CEO, and co-founder of The Braid Releaser, which I'm in partnership with my mother, who created um, the original tool, as well as a doctorate student at NC State, um, a distance student focusing on design thinking that's awesome what and uh okay yep no go ahead go ahead what <laughs> yeah, else no, i know you asked me like why i do it <laughs> why do you um, do it yeah so i think originally like i guess my background is is very different um i studied knitwear design I worked for a knitting manufacturer where I studied, um, well, not study, but really got a better understanding of the knitting machinery, um, how it works, the mechanics of things. So really becoming a technical person outside of a designer, which is very rare, um, especially for a Black woman in, in this specific role. There's not a lot of Black female technicians, knitting technicians, I would say. Um, so I always wanted to do something that was not necessarily tied to who I am as a woman, especially a black woman. 
Um, so I always wanted to challenge myself and put myself in situations where I can learn something totally different and be challenged every day. Um, I love being challenged. Um, even with working at Adidas, I'm challenged every day, which is great. I'm learning something different every day. Um, but also wanting more for myself that has nothing necessarily to do with my job, but, you know, being a CEO, being an entrepreneur, because I want to be able to have an impact in that community as well. There are a lot of female um, entrepreneurs who are rising and people need to understand the importance of having women in business. Um, So I really wanted to make an impact and put myself in a position where I can in the future help women establish, establish their business, um, you know, realize their dreams. And I think when it comes to academics, I wasn't, I was a good student when it came to like high school. I really became a good student, I would say in high school, but, um, my mother is an educator. My brother's in education. Um, my uncle was the first black superintendent in Jersey city. So we have, I guess, a lineage of, of teachers, my aunt a teacher. And I always, my father never gave my siblings an option to go to college or not. It was, you have to go to college. Like you're not taking a leap year as, you know, parents allow some of their students to do, but um, education is important, especially for people who are underrepresented. You know, sometimes we have to work or if not all the time, we have to um, show that we are meant to be in the room, that we are knowledgeable, um, that we are smart and that we are educated. Now, I, I do not want to say that people who are underrepresented that does not have an education do not uh, need or they're not worthy to be in the room. They are worthy to be in the room as well. Um, I think sometimes we just get challenged a lot because of who we are. You know, how many degrees do you have? You know, what is your work experience? You know, and I feel like we always have to show. With that being said, I'm not in, I'm not getting my doctorate degree to show people that I'm smart. It's more about really enhancing my learnings and making myself well-rounded so that I could speak to different types of things. Design thinking um, is actually totally different from being a designer that's connected to product per se. Um, So just really understand, again, that mindset of design thinking and different theories um, that really expose people's behaviors, um, environments. So I get excited about those things. I love to learn. I love to read books, Um, reading books more on like being an entrepreneur or just changing your mindset or having confidence. So I honestly do all of this to challenge myself and to be a better person um, and also share my knowledge. I think sometimes we fail as a community to share the knowledge um, and we have to do, we have to do a better job at that um, because if there is a woman or anyone who comes up to me and say, Hey, Sarah, you know, how did you get into Adidas? I'm going to share that information because I want to see more people like me, um, in this industry that's not necessarily encouraged for black women to be in. Um, there's not many black female, um, footwear designers in the industry. You know, it's not, 
promoted compared to um, males who are in the footwear industry. So, yeah, I, I, I do this because I love it. I love what I do. I love my career. Um, I love build. I love having the experience building something on my own as well with my my team and my family, um, and also just educating myself and getting a better understanding of different types of things and people. Love that. What? Uh, how? How did you take us on the journey of landing at Adidas? How? Where did you start, and how did you get into that the position you're in today? Right. So it's interesting because the journey, I'll say, is a long story, but I'll make it as short as possible. <laughs> um, I was working for a knitting manufacturer, Shimaseki, which is um, in Japan, but they also have departments and facilities on the East Coast. And I was working there. Um, I spent, I would say, about four years there, or probably more time than that. And I was at a place in my life where I was uncomfortably or comfortably uncomfortable. I was content with where I was in my life. I was okay with doing the job that I was doing. I mean, I was traveling around the world. Um, so it was a lot of fun. However, it wasn't a fire burning inside me. And I got this great opportunity to work in Los Angeles uh, my previous job had a, a facility there and we happened to have a conference, a 3D, we call it a 3D knitting conference. And I had the opportunity to meet, um, she was, I believe at the time, a senior in materials for basketball. And we were talking and we, I didn't realize where she worked until like later on. I was like, oh, wow, she works for Adidas. And we had a great talk. And it never really popped into my mind that I could work there. Um, mm -hmm. Because it, I felt like, you know, working in New York, I'm probably going to end up working and staying in New York for the rest of my life and being a designer there. That was like, that was the ceiling that I had placed, had placed for myself. But God definitely had a different had something different in mind. Um, so just from meeting her, she had spoke to my former boss, like, Hey, I met, I met this girl, you know, she's in knitting, so on and so forth. So from that, my former boss reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, we are forming a knit team. Would you be interested in a job here? And so in my mind, I automatically thought, well, you know, that's pro it's probably not going to happen. I'll apply. And then I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I applied. It took, I would say, maybe a couple of months of, of interviewing, um, meeting with the recruiter on the phone. And then I actually was um, flown to Portland, Oregon, to meet the team that I'll possibly be working with. And... I actually loved that setting because I got to, you know, meet everyone face, face to face, understand what their roles and function was um, and how I would play a part in that family um, because they, they were definitely a family for me. I got the job. So to say that I got the job in a very untraditional way, um, word of mouth, I would say. It, I didn't apply online and then waited 
you know, a week or so to hear back. Um, but I, I would point out that building relationships is very important. Um, just, you never know who you're going to meet. You never know what function they're going to play in your life. So I always want people to, especially younger people, to always be aware of their surroundings. And if they want us or a particular job or career, find people in those fields that you can build a relationship with. And I would say just from word of mouth, you know, getting, getting the job and entering a, a whole different world because my knitting background was specifically in apparel. So I was on a foot, footwear team. So I learned about um, operating knitting machinery in the footwear world and how to program and how to maintain a knitting machine and to code and things like that. So I'm really, I'm always going to be grateful for that opportunity. Um, And even within being in a knit on the knit team for a couple of years, again, I had that. Okay. Like Sarah, what's next? What is the next ceiling you're going to hit? You know, if you do want to learn more or what opportunities are in your current role or different roles. So I started to meet with people in the development department from various, um, we call them business units. So originals or meeting um, developers in the Cleta group and so on and so forth, just kind of picking their brain on exactly what was their role in the, in the process, in the footwear process or the production process? Um, what were their roles and responsibilities? Um, who did they communicate on a day-to-day basis? So after I got to learn and understand what it meant to be a developer, I applied for a role in basketball. And later on, I actually applied for the role again and then got the job. But learning how to be a developer was, again, like the next stage for me of learning and challenging myself. So I'm always trying to find, even within the brand, trying to find ways of how I can challenge myself and to continue to learn day to day. Um, And I think that's always been me throughout my journey um, and throughout my life is going someplace, doing what I need to do there, and then waiting for that message. Like, okay, Sarah, what's next? You're you're getting comfortably uncomfortable. So what is going to be the next ceiling you want to hit? And I would say that Honestly, for Adidas, working for Adidas has launched me. It necessarily wasn't a step. It was like a complete launch because I went from working at a knitting manufacturer on the East Coast to comp- living now on on the other side of the world. Like, Well, not world, but the country, right? Um, Portland is like thousands of miles away. I'm thousands of miles away from my family. So that was a complete change. <laughs> yeah. I'm always interested in like, transitions, transitions in people's career. Uh, what was it specifically that like drew you into fashion in the first place? Yeah, so my grandmother actually. Um, so my grandmother was an interior designer. <clears throat> Excuse me. She actually quit school to take care of her family, and she became a nurse. But her being an interior designer never left her. She would decorate around the house. We would reupholster couches and we would make pillows and being interior designer necessarily wasn't a gift that that wasn't something that I wanted to do that was my grandmother's gift 
Um, but I started to draw dresses and my grandmother noticed that I was drawing a lot and told my mom, like, hey, you know, she's drawing dresses. Maybe you guys should do something with that. To fast forward, um, I was enrolled in pre-college courses at the Fashion Institute of Technology nice. um, the, summer, the summer of my eighth grade year. So I started very early getting that college experience, meeting with the the professors, understanding how to illustrate fashion. So um, learning about the history of fashion as well, knowing, you know, the different types of clothes, clothing throughout the year of, or throughout the years, the many years of fashion and knowing, understanding designers and what their aesthetic is and finding what my aesthetic was. So I did that pretty much all the way up until I got accepted at FIT. So um, my grandmother was was very pivotal in my life when it came to fashion and fashion design. So I, I would definitely thank her for that. Um, God rest her soul um, for kind of pushing me to to pursue to pursue that. And even my father's mother was a great seamstress. So I always had it in me, but it, it's all about discovering that. Once you find it, you discover it, then you run with it. I love that. What's, for those who, in, in layman's terms, for those who are listening, what does being a footwear developer entail? Yeah, so you're pretty much the gatekeeper of your product. You hold the keys Literally, <laughs> you mm-hmm. hold the keys to, to the product you are um, managing. Your, your shoe is pretty much like your child. You see it from beginning to the end and t- until it leaves the doors of, you know, the factory, you know, and then goes into stores. Um, but we make sure that our product is looking the way our designers and marketing team want it to look. Um, we make sure that it's performing the way that it needs to. So we go through a list of standards that the shoe needs to hit. Once that's all approved and ready to go, then we basically press the button to say, okay, this shoe is ready to go. It's performing the way it needs to. It's looking the way it needs to. And it's ready to either go on our athletes or to go onto our consumer. You mentioned like sharing... You mentioned sharing knowledge. I don't know why I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> you mentioned sharing knowledge um, initially when we were first talking. And like as a kid, if you would have told me that that was a job, I probably would have laughed. I'd be like, I could never do that. Like that's yeah. just so wild. Like what, what like skills, like hardcore skills would someone need to be able to get into that? And to what, be a developer? You, yeah. And what mm-hmm. would you tell them that like, where can they go about learning those skills? Yeah, so what I would say is if you want to learn how to be, I would say, a real developer, you have to meet someone who's been a developer for like 30 years because our job is not one size fits all. We have so many things that goes on that you're learning something. Like I said, you're learning something totally different each day. Um, So I would say you would need to learn about the parts of the shoe. You need to learn how they function. You need to learn materials as well. I'm not a materials expert, but you have to have some type of knowledge of different types of materials, different films, 
um, how a shoe is, uh, I mean, learning the components, learning how they're put together, put together, excuse me, put together. Um, but there are also, um, opportunities like in pencil Academy, um, where you can take classes and there is a specific program, um, in footwear development, I believe. Um, if not, you can definitely receive more information, um, pencil Academy. I honestly feel like pencil is probably like one of the only programs that is really specialized in, um, really getting a deep dive into footwear, footwear development, footwear design. There are schools. I mean, like FIT has a footwear department as well and other, I'm sure like FITM and um, like schools in Europe and so forth, um, I believe has footwear um, programs. But I think you have to just do research, figure exactly what type of footwear you want to do as well because performance footwear, basketball, running, um, even lifestyle, it's totally different. Your development experience is, is mostly catered to what department you're in because different shoes require different, um, films require different processes, have different standards. So also understanding what type of shoe you want to be a designer or developer in, but definitely, Speaking to people who are in, in that field, finding those people and asking questions. Just to follow up on that, um, where, where do people find those people? Yeah, so honestly, you can go on LinkedIn and we all have our titles. You know, every you can find any. This is what's great about this, I guess, generation to say. You can literally LinkedIn someone and say Adidas or Nike developer or, um, you know, Columbia, King, wherever. And then you can find those people right on LinkedIn and send messages. You, I mean, you can send messages to me on LinkedIn. Um, so That's what I did. It, right, exactly. <laughs> so what I would say, I'm all about people doing the work. I'm, I'm not going to tell you, um, you know, I'm not, if you wanted to be a developer, you're, you're going to do the work to find the people. I did that myself. Even with me being within a brand, I had to speak to people in different part departments to get understanding of their of their job and why they got into being a developer. Um, and that was very helpful for me to understand why I wanted to be on this team and how I can be impactful and what I can bring as an asset um, to that team. But I'm not just going to give it to you. I'm you're going to have to find me or find mm-hmm. other people. Do the work. I'm never, you know, I I didn't have it the easy like nothing was given to me. So, I always challenge people if this is what you want to do, if this one you pr- want to pursue, then find the people who are doing it. And and no matter at what level, it doesn't matter if they are the director or the VP or a manager, it doesn't matter. Reach out to them. I've re- I've emailed, especially as an entrepreneur, I've emailed venture capitalists. I've emailed women with multi-million dollar businesses. And I emailed just to see what's going to happen. Like, hey, I would love to, you know, get some feedback or I would love to pick your brain on things. And what's the worst that can happen? They say no, move on to the next person. I love that attitude. That was actually, um, so I started in sports. I 
was in sales for the Bucks, and uh, that was the first thing that I learned there. Um, that has obviously uh, come along with me until now. And the more I sit down and uh, realize that, I, I just feel like the next generation has to do a better job at realizing that no isn't a bad thing. And a no is okay. You can you can either learn from that no and move on, or you can just mm-hmm. dwell on it. And I feel like uh, my generation and the generation but uh, beneath me has or beneath us has a problem with the word no. And I think it's because, I don't know, like growing up, I didn't have the best upbringing, but I was also spoon fed mm-hmm. sometimes. And yeah. I tell my parents that all the time. It's just like, sometimes we have to figure stuff out our, on, our, on our own. Um, That's right. But we want to talk about the industry a little bit here. And sure. the, the industry's uh, lack thereof of representation, um, whether mm-hmm. that be people of color or anything like that. But obviously, this being the women in sneaker season, want to talk about being a woman in the industry. So I'm going to ask, how how is it being a black woman in the industry? Um, what I would say is is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard being in this industry as a black woman because you don't see many of black women in the industry in the first place. So that automatically discourage you from, from wanting to pursue it because you don't see your, you don't see yourself in it, you know? Um, and that, and that's why I'm in the position that I'm, I'm in now because I want women to see black women that, Hey, I can be a developer or I can work for Adidas. I can work for these brands. I can be here, but it's difficult. I'm not going to say it's easy. You know, you, you're, you're constantly being challenged. You have to know, you have to know your shit. <laughs> if you don't know your shit, like people are not going to hold you as credible. So you're always trying to, I guess, prove a point. Like you are meant to have a seat at the table. Um, and it's exhausting at times because you have to educate people on sometimes why you go so hard, you know, because you're like, Hey, I'm here. And I want to create a path for many others to come into my position. But, you know, as I mentioned previous, like this industry is not, is not highly encouraging black women to get into it. And, you know, black women, we drive a lot of culture. We drive a lot of fashion style. So sometimes it's, it's frustrating because you know when you see um, commercials, you see us, you you see how we affect or impact the culture, and when we're not utilized or being placed in those positions to speak for that culture or speak for that community, it can get difficult. It can get difficult, um, and sometimes you kind of wonder, well shoot, I know how much it took for me to get here. Imagine what the previous or, you know, the generation under us has to do to get there. But it it also starts with, you know, mentorship. It starts with the teachers. You know, if you see a black woman who's sketching sneakers, let them know that or expose them to people or encourage them to get into that industry. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we're like, oh, you, you can be, 
You can be anything other than something that's completely directly um, from our, you know, industry that's from our culture um, or that fuels that culture, right? So it's a challenge. It's a challenge because you have to constantly show that that you're worth being there. Um, and we, and I also have to be mindful of, you know, how I'm learning, how I'm working with my team. Um, and that also plays a part because black women are always seen as aggressive or, you know, we have an attitude about things. So it's also about tailoring sometimes who we are or changing our persona to make other people comfortable. And that that's also difficult. Because no matter how many degrees I get, no matter how much ex- work experience I have, I'm still just a, a black woman. I'm, I'm still just, at the end of the day, I'm black. That's it. You know, it doesn't matter. My, my degrees don't matter at the end of the day. Uh, my work experience has to be 10 times as someone else's to get to get into the room. So to say the least, is frustrating. It's, you mentioned, it's frustrating. You mentioned two things in there that I really want to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one, um, I was listening to a, um, I don't remember what it was, but a podcast you were on. You talked about someone mistaking you for like a booth girl, which I don't even know what that is, but like mm-hmm. didn't sound good, you know? And like <laughs> you either talk about that experience or other examples. Cause I think people like hear these things and like, Oh yeah, I get it. But those tangible examples, like really yeah. educate people so they, they can see and step into your shoes. Yeah. So, um, my previous job and I, I love that, that I, I'm so grateful for that job as well. I learned so much. Um, we would travel around the world, um, promoting knitting technology in manufacturing in the U.S., the importance of the machinery and, you know, driving design and innovation. Um, and we would have a booth because we also sold the machinery as well. And I would stand there. And when you go to these conferences, I would say 95% of the people who walk around or who are who specifically in this industry are white males. So they would have an interest in the machinery and come to our booth and walked right past me and would go to my boss, who was a white male, and um, he was the VP of the company. And so they would say, hi, you know, we're interested in this knitting machine. Can you tell us the capabilities? You know, give us information. And what I what I love is that my, my boss would say, Oh, you walked right past the person who can help you. And their eyes would just, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you were a booth girl. I thought you were here just to greet people. I didn't know that you actually worked for the company. Um, And I said, I know because you wouldn't expect a black woman to, to be in this position. So, I mean, even being able to maintain a knitting machine and get my hands dirty, you know, that's, it's like, oh, um, it's so funny because a former colleague of mine said, you know, if you need help, I don't, I don't want you to hurt your pretty hands or to help, you know, you to basically to damage your soft hands. I forgot how he said it, but 
I said, I get my hands dirty too. Like I know how to maintain this mini machine on my own. I know how to operate it on my own. You know, so there's a stigma that only males can be in this industry. And I completely changed that. Just, you know, being a black woman who can do it as well. Was it uncomfortable and frustrating? Yes, of course. Because it didn't happen once. It didn't happen twice. It would happen on multiple occasions where I had to let someone know or, or my boss had to let someone know that, oh, she has the information. She can help you um, because it's not expected. So, yeah, that experience, I mean, this is all part of who I am and my, my journey. You know, these are stories that Black people are so comfortable with uh, telling because it happens to us so often. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, why are you getting a doctor? Uh, doctor? Why do you need it? And, you know, and even with a doctorate, once I walk across that stage, I'm still going to get, you know, passed for a promotion um, to someone who has a bachelor's degree, who may, be, who may be a white male. It happens all the time. This is things that we used to, these are things that we, these are topics that we have been talking about within the Black community for many years because it has happened to us for many years. So unfortunately, it, it's sad to say that I'm comfortable with having these experiences um, because it, it just happens and it, it's always going to happen no matter what field we're in, especially when we're the first in that field, um, you know, so it is what it is. <laughs> no, I feel it. I do a, um, I do a lot of speaking and it, it's not the same by any means, but like there's times where I'll go to an event and it's like a huge event, you know, and I'm walking around, I'm talking to people like CEO of that, CEO of this, you know, and then there's me with like, I normally wear like a big black hat. I look like a dweeb half of the time. And like, uh, yeah, like just shrug me off. And then I go up on stage and then it's like, oh, now I want to talk to you, you know? Yeah. Like, now, now, like, here's my card. Like, I love what you said. I had a dude come up to me and say, like, you are the number two black person, the number two most talented black person in Milwaukee. I'm like, what does that even mean, bro? Like, wow. Like, people are just wild, you know? But which leads yeah. me to the second, the second thing that I wanted to ask you. And about a month ago, you said this and you were talking about it a little bit before. Um, as well, you said, my hope is that the work I do and continue to do will allow my business and other businesses ran by black women to get the exposure and funding we need. Black dollar is very important to several markets, if not all. Can you just like expand more on that and talk about representation, DNI, and the importance yeah. of black dollar? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we have 90% of the buying power um, in the country. So when you, when you look at that, we spend the most dollars that could either be um, on fashion, food, hair care, grooming care, all of that. We have, uh, we take, I mean, without the black dollar, I mean, it, it wouldn't be nothing, right? Um, you know, you would be relying on other people to, to spend that money and no one spends that the amount of money the way that we do. Um, but the, the, what happens when you talk about the corporate world, especially representation, representation is so important because you have to have those people in decision-making positions. A lot of us are not. So when we are fighting for change, when we are... Um, when we are fighting for racial and social injustice and we don't have anyone to back us who can make that decision, it makes it difficult. Now, people will challenge me and say, well, Sarah, what about allies and advocates? Yes, of course we welcome that. 
of course we welcome having allies and advocates and also people need to know the difference between the two. But also we need people who look like us who are speaking for us and who are talking to the leaders of these brands too. And mind you, this is not a brand situation. This is an industry situation, a problem. So we have to have leaders in these industries speaking up for us, making a stand for us, because it only goes so far with people who are not making decisions at the end of the day. We can gather the people, we can gather people to stand by us, but if we don't have those VPs, if we don't have um, the presidents, the COOs looking like us, standing for us, then it's not going to happen. Um, and also it's, it drives people and inspires people to be in those positions. If I don't see a VP in a role, a black woman in a VP role, I know that two things, that I'm, ne- that I'm not going to make it there and that my journey to getting there is going to be difficult or that I'm going to have to fight my way to being the first, right? So if I'm not inspired or if I don't have the confidence to see myself in that role, nine times out of 10 times or nine out of 10 times, I'm probably not going to really pursue that road, that road or that role as hard as I want to, because there's a possibility that I might not get there because of me being a black woman. And a lot of times companies are not ready for it, you know, and, and that's just, that's just what it is. And so how do we get them ready for it? How do we prepare them for making change and having more um, black faces and brown faces in these high position roles? Um, you know, it's, we, we have to get there. And I do have an issue about diversity and inclusion roles. I do. And the reason why, and the reason why I talk about this is because you cannot automatically place black and brown faces in diversity inclusion roles and think that, okay, our job is done. Mm-hmm. It's not. Just because you place them there doesn't mean that they're going to be able to make the impact that, you know, that they want to. Sometimes they are struggling themselves to do their jobs. And sometimes visually it's there to say, we believe in diversity. We believe in inclusion, but sometimes they're not willing to do the work that it takes to make that change, either in their company or their community. So um, when I do see Black women and Black and brown faces in these diversity inclusion roles, my sentiment is always like, well, I, I hope that they are allowed to do the job that they are paid to do, you know, mm-hmm. um, rather than save face. So representation is important. We, we need those voices. We need our voices amplified. And, and, and you know, at times, unfortunately, um, not everyone in, everyone's intention is in the right place as well. You know, sometimes we may get to a certain point and then forget about bringing people with us. So we, need, we also need the right people black and brown faces in these positions so that they can create that path and not do it to have a higher position and to get a higher salary. So there's so many layers to it. There's so many layers to it. 
But people have to realize how important it is because we won't be able to make change. We won't be able to to progress the way we need to if we don't have um, people in those those high places. You mentioned allies versus advocates. Can you dive into that that definition and what that really means to someone like me? I'm Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. What I think we have to focus on, you know, when we talk about allies, allies, they believe in what we're talking about and they stand next to us, but they're not necessarily doing the work like our advocates are doing. Our advocates are actually, they believe in what we're saying, but they're actually doing the work to get us to where we need to be. And most of the time that can be um, the Latin community and the white community who believe and stand with us the Asian community, um, but also those people who are in those positions who are going to put themselves on the line. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate that you have to see it as putting yourself on the line, you know, because you are, you know, you're ruffling some feathers. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a tough topic. A lot of people do not want to talk about race. They do not want to talk about um, what's happening in the world. Sometimes they want to be sheltered from it. So advocates are the people who are ruffling those feathers, who are saying, listen, we have to make change or this is going to be the impact or this is how this is what we're going to lose because of it. So people have to understand that we need more advocates than allies, I would say, if anything. I think from here, we really want to dive into uh, we call this the rapid fire segment where we hit you with a few questions, um, few word answers, stuff like that. Good for snippets yeah. for us. Um, but from, I I'm going to start, I, I think that you're doing so much. Uh, if you can narrow it down to one word, what, what's the word that you can describe the, your, your role. Actually, if you could define your career to this point in one word, what would it be? Oh, one word. Hmm. It could be two, I guess. I would say excursion, some sort. Yeah. Or, um, discovery. Um, yeah, just, yeah. Like you said you were a big reader when we first started, um, that, or I was imagining things. Um, <laughs> what's uh, one book you would say that people should read after they after they listen to this episode? Yeah, so I'm actually finishing um, a book called "It's About Damn Time" by Arl- um, Arlen Hamilton. She Arlen Hamilton is one of the most known, well known Black venture capitalists um, in the tech world, and she also invests in other other um, businesses as well outside of the tech world. But what's interesting about Arlen's story is that, um, I mean, she really goes in about her mindset and how she pushed herself um, and how she was in certain situations in her life where she had to rise above it. She had to get out of it. And also goal setting, also um, really having that I'm never going to give up attitude. And this doesn't necessarily have to be about 
um, people wanting to be an entrepreneur or anything like that. It's honestly, these are things that happens in your life and you have to rise above. I mean, Arlen was homeless and she has raised millions of dollars for companies and to go from learning how to invest, learning how to become a venture capitalist from scratch and not necessarily having that education or that background experience of being one and now becoming one of the most notable black venture capitalists, I mean, in the country, if not the world, I mean, what's, what's there to say that if you're, if you don't have a design background, you can't be a designer. If you want to be a makeup artist, if you want to be an attorney, whatever you want to be, you know, you have that power to learn and to become an expert in that field. Um, what, if that's what your passion is, you know, we all have to figure out what our purpose here on this earth is. Once we figure that out and once you unlock that key and once you open that box, so many things can come from it. And that's really what it's about. I didn't know anything about being a CEO. I didn't know anything about being a founder. I had to learn. Mm-hmm. And reading books like that has really lit like a fire in me. Like there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing that I can't learn about and become an expert in that field. So I would say, go get that book. It's on Amazon. It's a great book. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm finishing um, right now. You've been at Adidas for, uh, I think, over four years now. Yeah. And yeah. you've probably worked on a ton of things. Is there a project that comes to mind as your favorite? Yeah, so I think the most important project that I worked on was the next level, the first generation next level basketball laceless shoe. The reason why is because I was so early in my footwear knit career um, that I, I, I had a great group of people who included me on this project and it really helped me to, it got me, it, it, it gave me a chance to use my skills, like really use my skills and understanding of knitting and, and footwear. Um, and I think the people who invited me on this project, Nick uh, Diber and Hillary LaRose, um, they really trusted my, my knowledge and my skill. And they relied on my information as well, which was made me feel really confident that I had team members to rely on me in that way. I was a little nervous about it because think about it, wearing a, a basketball shoe with no laces, but we, we made it happen and the team was great. Um, the shoe was great. We've gotten a lot of feedback on it. The next level shoe is evolving now and it is looking great. I'm really excited about it. Um, obviously I can't talk about it, but um, I think the, cons- I think every people will be pleased with how, how how the next level shoe has evolved and there has been many other shoes that I worked on but because that was like my first initial project as far as product is concerned I was really excited about it what is your favorite sneaker that you have not worked on oh my gosh so I (laughs) am just just because of way my feet are shaped um but I love the um the Falcon 
that's made by um, the originals team okay. um, within Adidas. That is my, I love the Falcon. It is so comfortable. I literally have like 10, 12 pairs of them. Like <laughs> I, cause they're so comfortable and they have like a wide front forefront. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't narrow, I guess I would say narrow shoes make my feet hurt. So when I have so much space in the front, it's amazing. Like, and the colors are cute. I can wear them with any outfit. So I, I'm, I love the Falcon. Love, love, love. <laughs> nice. What, um, what's one trait you think that, uh, did you, what is one trait that you think every woman coming into the industry needs to have? Thick skin. They need to have thick skin. Um, You have to have thick skin because you're going to come across people who don't feel like you need to be there. You're going to come across um, people who will put you under a microscope. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to, I always tell people, show up and show out. You know, when you show up, you let your work speak for itself. And a lot of my mentors always tell me that, like, you know, Sarah, it's not always a, you know, and I hate when people say, oh, it's not always a race thing, but, you know, let your work speak for itself. When you walk in a room, people know the things that you have done, you know, and that's what it has to be. You have to let your work speak for itself and you cannot become, you can't allow your emotions to get in the way at all, especially in this industry. You know, you're going to have bosses that challenge you. You're going to have team members that challenge you. And you have to be ready for that. And you also have to do it in a very graceful way. I'll say that. Thick skin, do it in a graceful way, and let your work speak for itself so that they won't give you any other reason on why you shouldn't be there. Respect. I dig that. What, um, this one isn't that deep. What's your least favorite track event? Oh, gosh. Besides those, besides those. No, the 800 was the worst. Mm. The 800 was the worst. I, oh, my gosh. <laughs> See, I'd say I four. Just, I, no, the four, I get it done. I'm in and out. <laughs> like, like, the four, I'm in and out. But the eight, I'm like, damn, I got to run one more time. I got to go around <laughs> one more time. <laughs> but, no, like, I want to be in and out. I don't, I... Like the 800, I was so mad at my coach that he put me on, he put me on an 800 one time. I wasn't prepared. My body wasn't prepared. I terribly lost the, the, uh, the race. Um, there actually is a picture of me that my brother or my mom or my dad probably has of me like dying on the track. Like my face, my body hurts. You can tell that you can tell by my face that, I was pissed that I lost and that I was tired. I burnt out too quick because I pretty much sprinted my full 400, not mm. realizing that I had to save energy for the last round. Mm. So I, yeah, that, yeah. Ever since that day, I was like the 800 is the worst for me. That's funny. <laughs> what makes you strange on purpose? What makes me strange on purpose? Yeah. That is a very interesting question. <laughs> Second like, time in two had, days, we got that reaction. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, no one has ever asked me what makes me strange on purpose. Um, 
that's a hard one. I don't know what makes me, I mean, I, I think, man, what makes me strange on purpose? I think just, I think just from what the things that I've done, just, and me telling my story is, is sometimes strange or the things that I do is, I think just my whole, I guess, career experience and journey just automatically makes me strange because people don't expect for me to have the story that I have sometimes. So they're like, Oh wow, you did that. Oh, like you, you are, you were trained in Japan and Oh, okay. Like, like black women are very versatile. Okay. We have done many things that people not necessarily would, would tie to, to us, but yeah, I think just certain things that I've experienced in my life just automatically just makes me strange. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I probably short answer my life experience. <laughs>